Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. The labor movement is having a moment. Both in the United States and in Canada, unions have won breakthroughs at workplaces including Amazon, Starbucks, Medieval Times, and Blizzard, alongside union drives at Staples, Indigo, and WestJet. While union rates in both countries are low, particularly in the private sector, recent momentum offers an opportunity for a resurgence. And while management and owners are pushing back against workers, the train on which they do battle is changing. And so on this episode, we ask, what is the future of the labor movement? My guest in this episode of Open to Debate is John Melrod, activist, human rights lawyer, and author of Fighting Times, organizing on the front lines of the class war. Let's start with you. I mean, typically in these episodes, we dive right into the issue, but your biography is so fascinating. And I actually like to give listeners a sense of of your history and your journey because it's inherently interesting, but it also speaks to the issues we're going to be talking about today. Can you tell me a bit about your formation as an activist and your work in the labor movement and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, uh, that's a long story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I, I really became active very, very early at about 14 or 15, I grew up in uh, Washington, D.C. in the 50s. And even as a child, I was struck by examples of what seemed almost apartheid-like conditions in the the nation's capital. I mean, you know, we used to go to Glen Echo Amusement Park. And in 1960, students from Howard University started picketing to integrate the amusement park. And the response from, you know, racists was really um, vituperative. Uh, Mm. They poured bleach into the swimming pool. You know, there were fights that went on. And in the end, uh, Glen Echo was closed, at least for a few years. But, you know, as a child, I related to to it on the level of, well, why can't these other kids swim? It's like 100 degrees here in DC and it doesn't make any sense. And this was, you know, just one of many. I mean, when we drove out with my family in the old days when, you know, owning a car was a bigger deal and we would drive out to Virginia countryside and there'd be all black chain gangs, you know, chained at the wrists, chained at the waist, chained at the ankles, doing road work with, um, you know, big white Southern, mounted police doing guard duty with a shotgun. So I had been exposed to this and had always been a bit troubled by it. And in 1964, uh, the Klan killed three civil rights workers who were uh, registering people to vote, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman. And that really resonated with me because that was my, they were about a year or two older than me. And I, as I was already becoming interested and involved in the civil rights movement, it really sort of upped the ante in terms of how important I felt that movement was. And I joined the Student Nonviolent Act uh, Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and we sent out thousands of letters about the uh, three young civil rights workers that had been killed. And that was my for putting my toe into the political um, raging issues of the day. Uh, and at the same time, 
you know, a few years later, the Vietnam War was becoming, you know, a major mm-hmm. topic. And you couldn't avoid it because it was on the news constantly. And I was becoming of draft age, as were the other high school students around me. And we really opposed the Vietnam War for, you know, a panoply of reasons. You know, I mean, one of which just it was horrible watching napalm being dropped on civilians Mm -hmm. and in seeing U.S. soldiers coming back traumatized and in body bags. So I participated initially, I believe it was 1967, that there was a national movement to shut down induction centers. And we took a van load of students to Manchester, New Hampshire, where there was an induction center and we attempted to block the buses of inductees. We weren't successful, but we had participated in what was one of the early, you know, militant direct actions to protest the war. Um, So I got started early and I chose to go to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, largely because that was a that was a hot spot for the student rebellion and the anti-war movement. And I that's where I wanted to be. I had already made a decision that being a political activist was really what I felt was something that I could do to change the world. Because in those days, in the late 60s, mid 60s, young people really felt that the world was ours to change. Mm-hmm. It was very encouraging time. I mean, we, you know, from the generational rebellion of wearing bell bottoms and long hair, you know, to the rejection of sort of the stage 50s to, you know, more direct political activity, we felt it was like our turn. And when I went to Madison, I became completely involved immediately in the anti-war movement on campus. And also the black students went on strike a couple of months after I got there. There were only 400 black students out of some 20 or 30,000 students at the University of Wisconsin. And the basic demand that the black students had been petitioning and meeting with the administration was to increase the number of black young people that were in attendance, as well as the teaching of black studies and, uh, you know, increase in professorship that were African-American. I mean, I guess this was critical race theory before mm-hmm. there was anything. And the amazing thing about it was that at the height of this strike, and they had to bring in the National Guard eventually mm-hmm. to force open the doors of the school. But we had a march, and this was in all the papers, this isn't just coming from me by any means, that 12,000 people marched one night in support of the Black student strike. And that's that was over a third of the student population. And these were mostly whites, and they weren't marching, you know, they were marching for the recognition of Black rights and in condemnation of a system that had afforded more privileges to white students. And unfortunately today, that's not such a universally popular opinion, but I think it's a vision that we had that we carried on through the 70s and 80s. And unfortunately, times have changed and we're once again trying to lay the groundwork for you know, fair and equitable treatment of all people. Um, I, I, 
I want to bring this back to to labor because uh, you know ultimately you ended up doing quite a bit of work in labor and a lot of activists do. Uh, you know, what is it about your your past in the activist spaces, your past seeing injustices, racial injustices, uh, sexual injustices, other identity injustices that brought you to labor specifically? Yeah, what really opened up my path to labor was in the first year uh, that I was in Madison, I saw posters up all over on the telephone poles with the black uh, eagle that's been identified with the United Farm Workers inviting students to come here. Jesus Salas, who was organizing in Wisconsin, a United Farm Workers Union hmm. in the canneries and in the migrant fields. And after listening to him speak, uh, at one point, there were about 50 steel workers who came to the School for Workers in Madison and Manuel and his brother Jesus were the speakers. And at first I was a bit skeptical. I mean, here are all these, you know, overweight white guys with buzz cuts and steel workers jackets. And I felt like, you know, I had landed on the wrong planet. <laughs> but, 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 but at the end, one of them put up their hands and he says, I make a motion that we steel workers show Brother Salas how we throw up a picket line in front of Kroger's grocery store. And this was at the time that we were boycotting grapes, both in the United States and internationally, because the growers had refused to recognize the United Farm Workers in California. And that Friday, 50 steel workers showed up in front of Kroger's where we used to picket and encourage people to boycott grapes. And they marched inside the store, they filled up their shopping carts with the ice cream on the bottom, and they pushed it to the checkout counters and they left them there. And they marched mm. out singing Solidarity Forever, the you know traditional union anthem. And I was really struck. One of the, one of the uh, lyrics that's repeated was, we should bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. And I said, well, this is pretty radical stuff. And I want to see what it's all about. And that's what was my first entree into the actual labor movement and feeling the, the power that lay within the unions if they were, you know, organized and progressive and had a rank and file leadership to them. And that's where it all started, really. I want to get into the sort of resurgence and recent union wins, both in Canada and the United States in a minute. But first, I want to get into the decline, because you mentioned, I mean, something changed uh, between the 60s and 70s and then into the 80s, 90s, 2000s. That there was a shift. Uh, a lot of that momentum was lost. A lot of the, the capacity that had grown was lost. There was a growth of, of course, the greed culture and uh, of capital. And I'm curious how you see the decline of unionism and activism throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Uh, how do we get to this point now where a resurgence is necessary? Well, I'd probably answer that with two prongs, really. One is, you know, as you say, capital really went on the offensive mm -hmm. and concessions <clears throat> became what bargaining was all about. And unions too often conceded to the concessions. I mean, the UAW, my union, is, is, is a good example. Um, the international leadership, which at that time wasn't voted on by the membership, they were all appointed. Mm -hmm. They were too quick to accept concessions on the promise of job creation, 
and at Chrysler, where they accepted the original deepest concessions within a, a year or two of that concession contract, 50% of the workers who had voted for concessions no longer had jobs. Mm-hmm. So uh, on, the, on the union's part, there was a, a retreat from the militancy that existed earlier and really you know, putting the interests and the livelihoods of their membership and the workers first and foremost. Um, that's not to say there weren't realistic challenges in terms of production being offshored and competition from third world countries that could manufacture at a lower price, but it was really the unions that you know agreed to two-tier wage systems, the granting of concessions, et cetera. So on the one side, there was that issue. And on the other side, there was the issue of, you know, monopoly capitalism was really in a consolidation phase. And part of that was, you know, they're driven by the profit motive and the greater profits that can be squeezed out of workers on the assembly line, the more that goes to the top. And, you know, I really learned that once I became an assembly line worker <laughs> in, in an auto plant. But one of the things that brings your answer a full circle is the UAW, we just won in the last year the right to vote for all international officers. And that was something we had fought for for decades. Hmm. I mean, our local led that fight in 83 to win the one member, one vote. And we lost it when Doug Fraser was president. We couldn't win the uh, number of delegates we needed to it. But this time around, there's about a dozen UAW officials who were in jail for bribery and embezzlement and all kinds of terrible charges. And and the uh, court appointed a ombudsman to come in and recommend changes. And one of those was to put on the ballot for every member, do you prefer a one member, one vote system for the election of international officers? And it passed overwhelmingly. So that's a big democratic reform. And right before I got on with you, I was looking to see if that was being replicated. And sure enough, in the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which is quite a significant size union that's been doing a lot of organizing, there's a move afoot there to change their system to a democratic-based electoral uh, one member, one vote. So there's a lot of lessons that are applicable to, to today's union movement. And I mean, of course, in the, in the 80s, 90s, we also saw a kind of move to, to international capital trying to undermine domestic union efforts too, right? I mean, there was this, well, that we'll ship the jobs overseas then, right? There's a sort of lack of, or a decline of, of bargaining power and capacity when, when you know, in, uh, transnational corporations are just saying, well, then we'll, we'll just go elsewhere, right? Yeah, and unfortunately, Congress was passing tariff provisions like NAFTA that made that, that sort of facilitated that flight of jobs. Rather than protecting unions and union employees uh, in this country, there was an open door for jobs to flow south, for jobs to flow to China. And now there's a lot of talk about the need to, you know, rectify those trade policies that were so unfair to labor. And again, that's another that's another lesson today that came from the period you're talking about in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
I mean, I think the other biggest factor really is that we're seeing a real resurgence of democratic rank and file unionism. Mm -hmm. I was making a list right before I got on the phone with you. Just there's been that I could find quickly nine local nine unions that are independent, that aren't affiliated with major traditional unions. And those range from REI workers to the Amazon Labor Union, to Home Depot, to Lowe's in New Orleans. So all of these are rank and file efforts. I read a great interview with the guy from Costco and he said, yeah, I read about this up in uh, Amazon Labor Union up in New York on Staten Island. And I heard what they were doing and I said, why can't we do that? So he said, I sent in some inquiry to the National Labor Relations Board and we started talking about it at Costco. And the first Costco um, filed a petition for recognition of the, excuse me, not Costco, Home Depot. I want to correct that. It was the Home Depot Workers United. And there'll be an election not too long at a Home Depot to vote on whether or not they'll be represented by the union, similarly with the Lowe's Workers United. So those are, again, lessons of that we're learning that the less the rank and file felt empowered and felt that the unions were transparent, the less involvement there was. So you're right, unions, industrial unions are at their lowest point of membership right now that they've been in a long time. On the other hand, I believe it's a 79% favorable rating among mm -hmm. the population in support of unions. So the, the Canadian case and the US case look in, in many ways broadly similar, sort of you know, fairly low rates in the private sector, higher rates in the public sector, but there, there's something happening. There have been winds south of our border, there's been winds here in the sorts of places you're talking about. I mean, I, in the intro, I talked about some high profile ones, Medieval Times, Starbucks, Amazon, um, uh, Blizzard, Activision Blizzard, here at Staples, Indigo, WestJet, you know, big companies. And, and so the, there is a moment right here. There's been some big wins. So, you know, how would you characterize the, tra the trajectory of unionization? Do you think this is a, you know, is this an aberration or do you think there's some real momentum that's coalescing into something here? Well, I do think there's some real moment, momentum, and I believe that for a number of reasons. I mean, I don't think I'm being at all hyperbolic when I say that. And one of the reasons is that the, a lot of these new union efforts are being driven and motivated by young people. Mm -hmm. I work with a group of Starbucks organizers out in the uh, Northeast area around Boston. And one thing they mentioned to me is, that we're not just building a traditional union, we're building what we call an intersectional union. Mm -hmm. An intersectional union means that they're not just concerned with the wages and the break time and the hours that they work, they're also concerned with the planet. They're concerned with the rights of you know, gay and lesbian people. They're concerned with dignity on the job. So their vision is much more the vision of youth and particularly when it comes to the earth. I mean, it's exciting to me to hear union people talking about how we've got to stop the degradation and the existential threat 
that is coming with industry being unregulated in terms of what they can pump out into the atmosphere. Yeah, I, I want to come back around to that in, in a moment um, because there's there's a lot to to unpack there, and I think you're right. Uh, first, I want to go back to the sort of uh, the, the actual push of, of unionization itself and and Biden's electoral victory. Um, you know, staying on the U.S. right now. I remember during the election there was a lot of hope that you know the Biden administration would be different. There was a sort of made in America plan. There was, which you know. Is, is grown from a number of things, including a, a desire for some protectionism, which incidentally has been in the part of growing economies for a long time. Uh, and then, of course, there was worries that Biden would back off once he won. It'd be impossible to deal with with Republicans. It'd be impossible to deal with the Senate. It'd be impossible to deal with the House, and it wouldn't get anything done. But there's some, as we discussed, there is a movement right now, and it seems to be gaining some steam and coalescing. Uh, do you think the Biden administration has anything to do with that? Well, I, I really think it's interesting that you happen to ask me that question because recently I was doing some reach, research on the National Labor Relations Board, mm -hmm. one of the government protective insti uh, institutions that Biden promised to reform and put on a more pro-union, pro-worker track. And, and he did appoint uh, Jennifer Abruzzo, mm -hmm. who used to be with the Communication Workers of America, as the head of the board. But it's been, on the other hand, it's been a bit disappointing at the same time, because six months ago, Biden cemented a majority on the labor board. And we were very hopeful that, you know, there would be all kinds of new precedent setting issues that they would deal with, that they would reject some of the rulings that had been promulgated under the <clears throat> Trump administration that were really very anti-worker. Um, and there haven't been, to, to our dismay, there haven't been those kind of precedent-setting changes that would have made it easier for unions to grow in this period. Um, you know, I mean, unfortunately, we've seen, you know, Warrior Met. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but it was a strike by miners down in Alabama. It's well over a year now, and the courts have been so rigid in terms of restricting what pickets are allowed to do. And they, they've used the police and private coal police to escort strike breakers through. And they've been out now for you know, hundreds and hundreds of days. And mm -hmm. there doesn't seem to be any immediate change on the horizon. Um, and part of that is the lack of funding that the National Labor Relations Board receives. It's really, you know, shocking when I get into the statistics of, for instance, full-time employees at the board dropped 31% from 1989 to 2010. Um, and, you know, that's with more and more filings for union certification, there needs to be a greater increase in the number of staff members. Mm -hmm. On the regional level, there's been a 33% drop in employees in the last nine years at the labor board. So one of the things that definitely can be done and needs to be done is providing enough money so that the board can investigate complaints that are coming in from all over the country. At, at Starbucks, there's 800 accusations of unfair labor practices. Well, the board is adjudicating those 
at a snail's pace. Mm -hmm. And there's 100 workers, union organizers, who've been fired at Starbucks. Granted, 12 of them were ordered rehired by the board, and that's a great thing. And it was an encouraging step for the union, but that leaves another 80 or 90 out there on the street who've been fired directly for their participation in union organizing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned structural factors because uh, I mean, do you think there's going to be some structural wins you know, now that there's momentum growing, for instance, on the classification of workers. I mean, I've seen the critique, and I think it's a good one that that a huge swaths of ununionized uh, workspaces and industries are, uh, you know, ununionized because of a simple misclassification of workers. I'm thinking particularly of gig economy jobs, Uber okay. drivers, for instance, right? Um, you know, that if we can win a kind of a classification battles, and this is true of Canada as well as the U.S., then all of a sudden it would be a very different ball game. I mean, do you think? That's a winnable fight, especially vis-a-vis the, uh, -vis the gig economy? Well, I do. I mean, I think if you look at states like California, where there's already been legislation that have challenged the gig economy as being solely independent contractors. In other words, under the existing National Labor Relations Act that dates back to, I guess, I think it's the early 40s, certain kinds of workers were exempted from protections and those included as you say gig workers and it's all interesting that you included cannabis workers because i was asked to do an interview recently on the unionization among cannabis workers and one place that the united commercial food and commercial workers have been active is in pennsylvania where they've organized about 600 cannabis workers but where they really got knocked down was when cannabis workers who worked more with the actual product, you know, either in the fields or in the rolling of, you know, marijuana cigarettes, um, they were, it was ruled that they weren't covered by the National Labor Relations Act. And the two workers who had brought the lawsuit for being fired for organizing a union were discharged. Hmm. Now in California, the under Jerry Brown, the older Jerry Brown governor, they passed the Agricultural Workers Act here in California, which gave agricultural rights more rights than workers were granted under the NRLB, rights to like govern the toxicity of pesticides, to provide, you know, bathroom facilities in the field, to provide water in the fields, to provide heat breaks. That's what's that's got to be extended much broader than the narrower definition of the National Labor Relations Act, which excludes those workers. So I think there is a movement at foot. And, and I would call on the United Food and Commercial Workers out in Pennsylvania to get active in the legislature trying to extend their act, the Pennsylvania Labor Act, to agricultural workers. Because we all know that's a growing industry that's probably only going to grow larger as time goes on. Yeah, and I mean, again, I'm so glad that you that you focus on rulings. I mean, this is true both in Canada and the United States. I and mean, part of the of the the victories from for labor will come from changing the rules of the game. I mean, it's one thing to unionize more; it's one thing to get breakthroughs in, at Starbucks, at Amazon, uh, wherever they may come. But fundamentally, there's got to be a, re a shift in the rules of the game because right now they're stacked against labor, right? I mean, for all the reasons we've discussed earlier, for decades, they've become stacked against labor and it's changing the fundamental rules. 
we'll, we'll yeah, you know, give them a real shot in the arm. One of those that's unfortunate is uh, under the Obama administration, they had card check as part of one of the yes. reforms that was being advocated, where I believe that 50% 50, 50 of the workforce plus one voted for the union, the union would be automatically recognized. Mm -hmm. And that would be a tremendous win, obviously, because what you have now is you have a union file a petition for certification, and it can be three, four, five months yeah. before the vote takes place. And Meanwhile, that, the company fights <laughs> dirty, right? Yeah. I mean, just at Starbucks, Littler Mendelssohn, the most union busting law firm in the United States, has assigned 30 attorneys hmm. to work with Starbucks to undermine union efforts nationally. Yeah. And that's why you get 100 workers fired, because you've got the, you know, the legal power behind Starbucks that's hard for labor to match. British Columbia just passed a law on card checks. Uh, here in, in Canada, and and there was a big win. It was, they they have a center left, just sort of social democrat uh, government there, and you know that was a big win. And, and I mean, again, this is what I'm talking about: is you know you've got to change those rules. Something is, I mean, it might seem simple to those who don't, who don't pay close attention, but a card check law is a is a game changer. It's an absolute game changer, and I'm really glad that you were able to add that in about the change in Canada. Because, you know, what happens in Canada, you know, spills over to the United States. Um, and, and that's a pretty good, that's pretty important for, for us to be talking about that, in fact, on the ground in North America, card check exists. I mean, I also know that up in Canada, the steelworkers are very involved in organizing at mm -hmm. Starbucks. So mm -hmm. it's a companion movement. doesn't have to be the same union, but there's cross-communication between Starbucks workers here and Starbucks workers in Canada. Even in, in BC, in fact, this is one of the, of the jurisdictions where they uh, have stores who are part of the, of the steel workers. This is part of, of where they're, the, they were active and, um, and, it's, uh, and it's showing. And I'm so glad you brought up this point though, because I wanna talk about cross-border solidarity. I mean, you know, how important is, is solidarity across state lines, across provincial lines, across national border lines? Um, you know, they used to talk about workers of the world. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, some people did. Uh, but, but I mean, there was a sense among uh, trade unionists that, you know, this was very much a cross-border movement, you know, that, that workers were workers were workers. And, you know, the fight was, was not just a local fight. It was a, a national fight and, and an international fight. I mean, do you think that there's a growing kind of international solidarity Solidarity, national solidarity. Do you see that as as a hope for for labor gains? I do, because recently there was a meeting in Chicago by Labor Notes, which is a labor publication, and there were about I think two or three thousand people there in June, and there was a meeting as of, of Amazon workers from all over the country, you know, most of whom were organizers but had not yet petitioned for a union election, but at that meeting there were overseas Amazon workers. I mean, there's been contacts between Polish Amazon workers who've been on, who have been on strike. You know, there's Amazon workers in other European countries and there is that solidarity. First steps at it, you know, I mean, I agree with you. It should be workers of the world unite. Um, <laughs> not always so easy because we have a lot of national cultural differences, but you know, I worked at American Motors which was originally the Nash plant and then the Rambler plant and then American Motors when I went there in 72. 
And in 83, uh, American Motors was purchased majority ownership by Renault, the French national car maker. And we had a real taste of internationalism because we, our caucus, we had a rank and file caucus in the union because we felt there was a lot of need for reform, but we wanted to do it within the union structure. And we were invited to a meeting in Paris that I attended with another steward. And there were 57 delegates from 13 countries who were Renault workers. And it was really, for the first time, I got that feel from Workers of the World Unite. I mean, in our opening session, they had a bank of translators, just like the UN, in the very back of the room, because there were people there from Mozambique, from Morocco. There were Renault plants all over the world. And so we had simultaneous translation. But importantly, when I was given the floor to ask questions to Monsieur Ilson, who at that time was second in command of Renault, I said to him directly, you know, we have a better contract at the American Motors plant in Kenosha and in Milwaukee than they do in Detroit at those auto plants. Because we had maintained certain early democratic rights, like the right to strike over all grievances, the right to have one steward for every 35 union workers, and the right to voluntary overtime. Actually, Walter Ruther had given those up in the 40s in exchange for better wages, cost of living, more vacation time. But I posed the question to Monsieur Elson. I said, look, are you going to come after us and say that we're not competitive? And he went on the record at that time saying, no, we consider your plant productive and competitive, and we're on the record committed to staying there. Well, mm. that was great. But a couple of years later, the auto industry took a bit of a dive and small cars weren't selling. And we were making Renault's two smaller models and production was cut way back in 85. Um, and that's when I decided to leave the plant. I was still young enough to do something else. And I uh, went to law school and then became a lawyer representing refugees and political asylee candidates from all over the world. Had the biggest, me and a partner had the biggest refugee asylum practice in the Bay Area. Um, so I've stayed active, you know, well, I stayed active. The only period that really knocked me out of the game was I was diagnosed with uh, pancreatic cancer in 2004 and told that I only had six months to a year at most to live. And the surgeon, I have his report in my file, attributed the disease to my exposure to industrial toxins, mm. particularly trichloroethylene, which was in a barrel with a skull and crossbones on the side. And the company refused to give us protective gear, respirator, none of that. So that mm. I had to go down into a pit and literally clean it out, choking on this dust that had accumulated from trichloroethylene. And he said that was enough to trigger the pancreatic cancer that and the tannery solvents when I worked in a tannery. And I set my mind on, I'm going to beat this thing. And now I'm considered 100% cancer-free. Well, I'm certainly, I'm certainly glad you beat it. And I'm glad you beat it and, and are here with me today to talk about it. I, I want to close out on, we've only got a couple minutes left, even though I could talk about this all day. Um, you know, the labor movement is about 
more than wages and job security. I mean, those are central. But you, I want to bring it back to racism and sexism, which you talk about, for instance, and the sort of, of uh, intersectional movement that has become part of the workers' movement in some cases now. Uh, you know, what do you think the role of the labor movement is in fighting along those lines, as well as the traditional lines of wages and job security and on-the-site protections? Yeah, I think that's a great question because that really addresses front and center the direction that unions have to take. Um, when we are caucus in the UAW, two of the planks that we stood on were fighting racism and fighting discrimination of women and misogyny. And we had a column called Scab of the Month that we did <laughs> every month in our newsletter that went after foremen who would engage in particularly egregious behavior. I mean, I could go into it, but it was just horrible. I mean, one foreman, you know, became enraged at a black worker and he picked up a 35 pound air gun and he threw it at the worker and he called him a lazy MF N word. Well, yes. those, those, we, we went straight after all the foremen that engaged in that behavior and they got together and AMC financed their lawsuit against us for defamation. In the end, they, we brought in 50 fact witnesses that attested to the veracity of every article that we had written in our newsletter. And then the labor board turned around and sued AMC for engaging in an unfair lab pra labor practice by suing us. And they had to pay $350,000 in back wages and legal fees. But that's because we took that issue on, you know, when, when there was a march down in Tupelo, Mississippi against the Ku Klux Klan, we put out a flyer, and this was a mostly white factory of white guys, women and men in Kenosha, organizing a busload of people to go down and march against the Klan. Not everybody agreed with us, you know, certainly, but, you know, we felt we had to show people that in our unity is where our strength lies. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly true in a factory you know, where there should be no two-tier pay systems or mm -hmm. certain jobs that still don't allow minorities to take those jobs. That's still a problem today in the skilled trades. So there, that fight is still a fight that has to be waged. And, I, you know, I hope that people will get a chance to read my book because it discusses this, you know, basically goes through my life, but it does it in a shortened version. And it's called Fighting Times, Organizing on the Front Lines of the Class War by Jonathan Balrod. And it's on, it's on pmpress.org or in any store. Basically, it went national a week or two ago or a month ago. And it's been selling all over the country and doing quite well and getting very good reviews. So I hope that people will you know, check it out or check out my website, which can lead you to the link to buy it, jonathanmelrod.com. I recommend folks do that. Uh, we've covered some of this today. There's so much more to cover. You can find a lot of it on the website. You can find it on the books. That brings us to time. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. It, it was truly um, fantastic. And, and I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners did too. So I, I very much appreciate it. Well, really, David, it was my pleasure. And it's really enjoyable to meet somebody who is equally educated 
on labor affairs that taught me something new about the law in British Columbia on card check. So thank you. My pleasure. We're pushing. We're, we're gonna we're gonna build that solidarity across borders, and I'm I'm looking forward to more and greater wins. So that brings us to the end. But as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, to Ross Clark, and Aisha Jara make the show not just possible, but so much better than it would be without them. And of course, to all of our listeners, thank you very much for joining me week after week after week. We'll be back two weeks from now. And until then, stay safe. We'll talk to you again soon.